My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by the founder of AMDC Films, the producer and director of the acclaimed uh, documentary, The Plot Against the President, um, former advisor in the Trump administration, and an all-around badass and and based queen, uh, my friend Amanda Milius. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me with a fellow based queen. Thank you very much. Uh, I consider this podcast a... um, a, a place to unite the the based department to to highlight all that is based and all that is holy, um, and I'm really really happy that you who have come on. Um, I have a question from our frog friends because I put it out just before the, the podcast, like, you know, Amanda Millis is coming on. Um, what should I talk to her about? And I think one of the questions was interesting because it's essentially about um, what does it mean to be a woman in, in this new dissident, dissident right? Or what is the role of, of women in, in the dissident right? Um, well, for me, I have found this weird spot. And I talked about this a little bit on um, uh, a podcast that I'm sure you know that we all know and love called The Perfume Nationalist. Um, so it's it's a fag hag and two fags sitting there talking about the importance of masculinity in our culture. So Uh, that's sort of where I find myself is, um, you know, I, it's not just that obviously I, I'm very, uh, my topics of that, of things that interest me go from just being a political obsessive, uh, mostly obviously about American politics, but all over the place, populism, nationalism, um, and, uh, obviously American foreign policy, two of my sort of wonky hobbies, but the thing that has somehow, arisen either because of my my dad and my relationship with him and because he was kind of one of these last relics of a um a man who wasn't held back by society's new decisions about what men should be um who often gets sort of almost uh more described as like this macho guy than he really was in a sense. I mean, at the end of the day, like the guy was like, I would, I, you know, he's, he's still alive, but he, he would say, I, I want to be remembered as a surfer, like not a director, not a writer, da, 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 which is his own thing. But, um, but because he raised me and I had a good, I mean, he, my mother raised me, but I mean, I had a good relationship with him. Um, I think I have a respect for, traditional masculinity and I see its loss in society as a, um, a really big problem. Um, and, and I see, I see that as actually being one of the key issues to all of the other issues that I care about, foreign policy, American politics, nationalism, et cetera, what's good for the country, what's good for society. All of those things actually, in it's in a sense, boil down to, the family and the role of men and women in society. Now that as a, as a 
uh, I suppose, uh, uh, frog queen, that is, um, it's an odd thing for me because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm coming at this as you, you could, you could say I support a very traditional lifestyle. I think women were lied to early on. I think feminism was the worst trick that the left ever pulled on society as a whole. I mean, I think you can trace almost every major problem back to it. Um, and so I'm, I'm clearly not a, a supporter of uh, traditional feminism. I don't care what wave it is. Um, but however, my life that I live myself, and many people would say, well, that would call, make you a hypocrite, is, uh, is quite different, right? Um, you know, I, I used to joke with people that, uh, you know, I, 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 I advocate for a very traditional lifestyle, yet I live like a lib. I live in an apartment with two cats and a career. Um, but you know, the reason that I say that is because I think that there's got to be a space for exceptionalism. And the reason that there, that some people are exceptional is they are exceptional to something else that is the norm. And I think that having worked in all kinds of, uh, environments, um, independent film companies, um, literary offices, um, uh, the government for, as we know, three years, many different sort of work environments. Um, you know, I know I'm going to get uh, some crap for saying this, but most women don't have any business being in the office, uh, any office, let alone being told since they were little girls that they should be CEOs. I don't know why it's unnatural. They, they don't even want to be CEOs like they they. And I think it's, it's really awful what they've done to women, because frankly, most women would be absolutely happier you know, um, being, uh, mothers and wives and, um, having traditional lifestyles. And that's not to say that there isn't an exception here or there to the rule. I'm not saying it should be like an across the board rule. It's just that this overemphasis on every woman must be a CEO is ridiculous because it, it holds back whatever office you're in. There's always more problems somehow because, because of it. And, uh, and uh, and then it makes it even worse for people like myself, who I consider, uh, you know, because I, I can be rather vain and narcissistic and quite full of myself as well. But at the same time, I mean, I am uh, exceptional. I have worked in all of these environments and I worked in them differently than what I noticed a lot of the women around me, uh, how the, a lot of the women around me did. Um, um, it makes it more difficult <clears throat> in our sense because you're fighting against this kind of like internal, they're not allowed to do it externally anymore. This internal eye roll of like, Oh God, like we've got a chick working on the thing. Now we've all, we can't, we can't say anything. It's like, you know, it's, it's, um, and I'm not like that. So it's, it's, it's annoying. It's really annoying to everyone. It doesn't, this, this feminist idea that women should be CEOs is actually really quite awful just for everyone, including exceptional women that do make sense in a work environment. Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely a, a tension, you know, being, being a woman uh, on the right. And I feel it sometimes as well. I mean, I've, my background's also, I've been in, you know, I've been in technology, I've worked in finance, I've, you know, I've, I've had, like, I have cats, I love cats, you know, <laughs> they haven't, <laughs> I've gotten, haven't gotten to a point where they eat me, you know, I've, I've stopped the train before that. Uh, and <laughs> now I live a traditional so far. life. So far, yeah. yeah the two of still, of us, they're still here. Yeah, according, 
according to a lot of places on the internet, you know, two of us may end up being eaten alive uh, by our cats, but uh, hopefully the uh, dolphin and frog kings will come save me before that. <laughs> hopefully. Is that, is that I, I don't know the dolphin thing. Is I mean, is I can't say no more. I can't, it's not, I, 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 I must, I must leave it there, but, um, okay. All all of the animal creatures around all of the, all of the, all of the, uh, animal worlds on, on Twitter will come and help us. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, that's uh, comforting to know (laughs) frogs and dolphins will come to my rescue. (laughs) Um, well, you know, it's, um, well, like I said, the, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's an interesting place to be. And I think a lot of women get accused of being like pick me's and, and people who are like, right. you know, not like other girls by trying to appeal to a group that doesn't necessarily um, favor them in a very direct way like liberalism does. So liberalism essentially tells you that, um, you know, the world is a free for all and we want to expand your degrees of freedom with with every day, you know, and, and this is the this is the right side of history because you as an individual get more freedoms every day. How could you not want more freedoms? Um, and that sounds counterintuitive, you know, to a lot of women. Like how, why would I want to restrict my, um, you know, powers as a woman. Uh, but actually it's, uh, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that, ladies, because the problem is that, you know, once everyone is extremely free, you don't really get the, the option to live a traditional life. If every no, man you, you meet is you don't a cat, you're not going to get a husband. It's, yeah, it's, it just doesn't. No, and, doesn't and, and even, uh, you know, some of the things like, for instance, Blake Master uh, was uh, widely praised for his you know, at this point, revolutionary idea, but at a certain point was the norm that American households ought to be able to live off of one house, uh, one income. And he didn't say whether that was the husband's or the wife's income, but the idea that there ought to be enough, uh, that the economy ought to be built around families. Families ought not to be built around the economy. Um, And that's where we are. So I think yeah, the idea that liberalism somehow provides more freedom. I think people are starting to wake up to that. I mean, you even see like, you know, people that aren't even involved in politics and don't even understand why making these little videos going, thanks a lot, feminism, on my way to work at 6 a.m. when I could be, uh, you know, like instead of saying like, dropping my kids off at daycare instead of staying home with them and like doing what I'd actually like to do. Like I have to go to my job to support our lifestyle or our, you know, barely getting by lifestyle for many people, um, to have two incomes in a household. I mean, it's, uh, it's absolutely restricted women's freedom because at the end of the day, they're all, they always pretended like it was about choice. They always use that phrase, obviously with abortion is the most known thing, but, um, they always use that, that it's all about, well, you won't be, tied down in this family. And you're like, no, actually you just, what well, what you have now is this bizarro, you know, world where, uh, you know, the recent controversy with this guy who, as far as I can tell, didn't really do anything wrong, but dated lots of women on these dial up apps. What are they for? If they're apps meant to arrange dates all over a city. Like, I don't understand, like, what did women think that was going to result in that the highest value men we're going to basically use it like a takeout order um, device and and everyone else was just going to like fight it out in these weird, awkward um, interactions. I mean, the whole thing, it really was kind of invented by women. They don't they may not have invented the apps themselves, but the culture of it, the culture of women 
thinking that the the thing to do to be tough and to be cool is to um, be like, oh, well, I just have free and casual sex just like men do. Um, it's just completely counter to women's nature, uh, most women's nature, let's say. Um, uh, and, uh, it's, it's not a surprise. I mean, they've created this world. So, you know, I, I don't really feel that bad for them. Um, I think it's a shame for the younger ones that are sort of coming up that are like teenagers now, they don't know what they're getting into. I mean, I, you know, my niece is very young and I hear about all kinds of things from her and it just sounds very, just quite decadent and disgusting and uh, just awful. So, you know, I, there has to be some kind of a reckoning. It's the, the relationship between men and women, I think has gotten even more strained than it was, you know, they used to talk about this in uh, the post-war world. One of my favorite periods of film was um, the post-war, you know, American film noir. And a lot of that, the undercurrent to a lot of that, a lot of those themes was this sort of um, sexual tension between uh, men and women in America at that time. Um, And it was always, it was, you know, obviously it was, it was always uh, done so artfully and beautifully um, in that period of time in film. And that has not exactly healed. Uh, it, and it's, it's not helped by women's reaction to it, which is one of the reasons why I think, you know, I like to, again, a, because of my dad and because it's just the kind of characters that I'm drawn to, um, you know, it's not just strong masculine men who are like, you know, oomph, I go to the gym. It's not being afraid to be who they are and just not bending to society telling them, to eat the bugs, to get in the pod, to just do the normal thing. Like I've always been attracted in in character and, you know, in art, in fiction. One of the reasons why I optioned the McAfee book um, to men who were just willing to say no and live, live their own life on their own terms. I think it's just, it's something that I really gathered from my dad and, um, and, and it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I supported Trump. I mean, it's all of these, these figures have, uh, have something similar in line. And it's the ability to look at the impossible and say, I don't think it's impossible and I'm going to do it. Yeah, there, there's also something between the theme of, um, of family and needing family and being tied into family and also kind of not only putting up but glorifying these, these strong characters. Because essentially what we've been told is that, one, you don't need family. Family is optional. Family can be toxic. You know, you need to get rid of your ties to family if it, they don't serve you as an individual. It's a, there's a big Oh, thing. not only that. And, and they'll, they'll hold you back from your real purpose in life, which is to be a CEO. Of course, <laughs> of course, and that right. <laughs> or, or spend your days working at some corporate institution that will forget you the day that you leave. I saw that in government. I mean, I saw these women coming to work after their maternity leave, and and you're like, who's with your kid? And and they were just so like dedicated to being at this job, this 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 nameless, faceless government job that absolutely did forget them and move on the day they left or went somewhere else. And you're like, you gave all your hours in your day to that, whereas your child will never forget you. And, you know, I say this obviously as someone who doesn't have children at this point. Um, so, you know, maybe my, maybe my mind will change. I don't know. But at the, at the moment, it just seems rather sad. 
Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who's just had children, yeah, <laughs> that's very exactly the sentiment, at least for me. I mean, obviously there are many, many types of women, but if I, if I was forced to go into like a, <laughs> like a DMV style job right now, <laughs> I'd probably throw myself off the building. Like, no, no way. Um, but that's very interesting. Like in case anyone does not know who Amanda's dad is, uh, he is John Milius, a Hollywood legend. I have to admit, I did not know about John Milius before I knew about Amanda Milius because I, <laughs> I'm Romanian. I'm interested in politics. I'm pretty much not a film buff. I don't know anything about anything in terms of film. So that's why. Um, but I think the, the interesting thing and the kind of the layer that, that John Milius adds to the story. And since then I have I've, I've understood what, what the, the legacy of your dad meant, um, is that he is one of these kind of problematic guys. Like in terms of like, um, you know, the kind of dad that shows up in serial commercials, he's not that guy, was he? So you kind yeah. of have to deal with him in a way, but he's still family. And by um, incorporating that in your life, you've kind of expanded your horizons like you you could you could you know delve into these characters even better like I feel like that's such an important thing that people just don't do anymore they they don't put up with people they don't struggle with their with people they don't um I don't know they don't take them along throughout their lives they just they just focus on their own stuff and I feel like that's a very impoverishing way to 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 lead your life I totally agree and I mean I I talked about this before but you know I would much rather have had you know, the dad, like my, you know, my, my brothers, I think were wished that he was a little bit more of your sort of traditional, like show up at the T-ball game guy. Uh, I don't need anybody at the T-ball game. I'd much rather have, you know, related to him at a slightly older age, uh, and learned the life lessons that I did from someone who I consider a genius, uh, you know, and I, I, I think there's a lot of things I could complain about, you know, um, but I think that I think I've I got over that. I think thankfully young was the idea that, you know, a lot of people had sort of shitty parents. Like there's a lot of people that have narcissistic parents. Yeah. Not all of them are also, um, you know, genius filmmakers and sort of philosophers that you can learn a lot from. So, you know, you take the good with the bad, but, um, I think I, I, it's, it's much better to be thankful for that. And, uh, you know, um, and, and I, I mean, we still, I still struggle with it, obviously, you know, like I even, even showing him my clip on Tucker, which he wanted to see is like a total process because he's basically held hostage by, um, you know, the cross-eyed hooker that he's moved into his house. Like he does really weird things that absolutely disrupt the function of a normal family life. Uh, obviously my parents are divorced. They have been for a long time, but for whatever reason, still re remain really, really good friends. Like they hang out every weekend, uh, go shooting. Um, but so, you know, there's things like that where I'm just like, you know, you get really sick of the, the ex eccentricities on a, on a day-to-day -day level where I'm like, yeah, this is, this is so stupid that I, I just, I, I'm not dealing, but at the end of the day on the whole, I, I certainly think I'm very grateful for his, um, you know, guidance and, uh, influence on me, I would say. Yeah. I feel like that's a, that's a very healthy way to, to, to look at it. You know, I, 
I, that's probably even for me the like the the moment I felt like I've, I've gained maturity is when I when I could forgive my parents. You know, like they were flawed people, and for a long time I was a bit like caught up in therapy culture. I was like, oh my god, kind of counting their sins every day. Like, oh my god, what they do to me? So how do I have complex PTSD and stuff like that? But no, therapy <laughs> culture can be really insane. I mean, look, I'm from Los Angeles specifically. I'm from like Bel Air and Beverly Hills. So it's a known thing that you put all of your children in therapy by the time they're six. So I've been in therapy since I was like six years old. <clears throat> I've been in every single kind. This is just what you do in LA. Uh, I obviously haven't since I've uh, left. Uh, I, I think I I cut that out when I went to film school just because there was no time. And suddenly you realize you're like, oh, the rest of the world doesn't live like this. You don't need to go like indulge yourself every five seconds. And for certain people, I actually think therapy is quite necessary. Um, but uh, the overuse of this, yeah, like um, shifting is it's it, and, and all therapy is different, but there is this a great deal of it that seeks to blame your problems everywhere but yourself. And also, by the way, it it rose when the church and look, I'm, I'm obviously Jewish, I'm not Christian. And so I, when I speak about like things like the church or religion, I'm, I'm speaking about it in whole, um, when people became less religious, especially in the United States, suddenly therapy replaced this, um, extremely, uh, uh, well, well-tried, um, tradition that actually worked for millions of people for million, for many, many years. Like, uh, which is the idea of uh, faith actually solves a great deal of problems. And uh, therapy is this weird sort of backwards Band-Aid that they put on it to sort of do almost the opposite, where, um, you know, placing your problems in the hands of everyone else is somehow going to free you um, is is a very odd way. It's never, never exactly worked in human history. Um, uh, unless the, unless the place where you're placing your problems and, uh, asking for, uh, you know, forgiveness and help is, uh, in, in God, you know, what, whatever religion you may be, um, may be into. Um, so I think that that's actually one of the biggest problems we've got as well is we basically are living in a post-religious society, which I has, I, there's only certain times in history where that's ever existed and they haven't been bright spots on mm -hmm. historical timeline. Yeah, but we now are reasonable people. We have overcome. <laughs> the enlightenment has set us free. We are on our way to progress. Um, nothing can stop us. Uh, with science on our hands, science with a big S. Um, yeah, things are looking bright. <laughs> I think this year actually maybe, I mean, if we can, if, if, if cool, if somehow people can get some perspective on the last two years, it might've finally killed that idea finally, that like science as the new religion is an absolutely, uh, in, uh, it, it is not, it is not worthy of, of being that replacement. It can't be, and it is not. And I weirdly used to harp on this back when I was an undergrad is, um, there was always, uh, this group of people that were like, get your religion out of my science. And I would kind of always want to say, get your science out of my religion. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 there's, there's going to have to be a reckoning. And I feel like the last two years have actually kicked that off. If there's anything that we can be hopeful about, uh, having come out of the last two years, I think that, um, a lot of people seeing, um, the sort of 
hoax in what a lot of people call science um, is has been very helpful. Yeah, it's it seems like it's it's raining red pills in the last few years. At least from from my perspective, obviously, I, I see them very well because it's my echo chamber. Um, what does it feel like in in Hollywood right now? I know you're not in Hollywood exactly, but you are kind of part of the the uh, the larger Hollywood milieu. Um, is it survivable being a conservative in Hollywood, trying to make any sort of content, movies, documentaries? I mean, I I don't think so. The people that I hear from. Uh, they want to work for us either. And then it's fine. I'm always happy to have people work for us under assumed names um, because they will never get hired again if they work for me. Um, it goes back and forth. I mean, I, I, I have relationships still in Hollywood and I talk to people there, all my lawyers and a lot of the infrastructure of my company is there because it's the proper place for it to be at the moment, but there's no reason for me to be there. I don't have to go, you know, um, bow down to these deciders of what content is anymore, um, which is an incredible thing. And that's only, only due to the fact that I have a large audience, uh, by which I mean the large audience that watched Plot Against the President, um, which is still available on Amazon and iTunes and YouTube Premium and Rockfin. Um, and, uh, the ever relevant Plot Against the President. Um, but, um, The fact that that audience is still there and is willing to seek out the good content, uh, that's going to be a thing in the next couple of years. You know, Amazon is going to make it extremely difficult for me to have another um, hit like that. They changed the rules to their um, the policy after our movie came out. They will no longer accept documentaries, uh, unsolicited documentaries after Plot Against the President. Um, so they're willing to kill off half the independent documentary industry, which is usually actually almost entirely filled with libs. So they don't care. They're willing to kill all that off in order to not have some breakaway hit like what we had. However, there's lots of there's lots of uh, other platforms popping up. There's lots of things that just may mean that the audience has to pay attention and spread the word and work hard to tell people where they can find things. Um, I think this is a minor blip. It might last a year or two, but I think eventually the dissident content creators will have a platform that will uh, solidly put out work without question. Um, you know, and I, I think I think that'll that'll come about. But so yeah, so Hollywood, I mean, I can't even imagine living there. I I have to go there like once every two months or so. I, I I think I got through last year only going there like once or twice. I try to go as as infrequently as possible because as soon as I land in LA, I feel like a um I feel like I'm choking. Um uh again on the the podcast I did with uh Jack, the perfume nationalist, we reviewed the the uh the day of the locust which is um sometimes considered harder to watch than a snuff film that's how unpleasant it is and that's really how i feel about hollywood it's like one of the most um stifling places uh i also grew up there a lot of people don't like going back to where they grew up um there's a reason i live entirely across the country i live in washington dc uh it's the most opposite place you could possibly be from hollywood um I went to college in New York City. I mean, I, I tend to find myself running to the other side of the continent uh, most often. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I can't I don't know what to say to people that still live in L.A. Um, 
I think they should move. I don't, I don't think that there's really any hope in it getting any better. I think it's going to get much worse. Um, and, uh, I, I think if they hate it there, they should move. Um, I think Dallas is wonderful. I think uh, I really like where I live now, which is in Alexandria. And I think um, there's plenty of wonderful places to move to that aren't miserable. Um, the weather's not that good. Uh, I mean, it's pretty good. But, um, you know, Nashville is taking off, obviously, with the uh, planting down of the Daily Wire and their massive studio system, which is there. They've got a whole huge infrastructure, which is extremely impressive. Um, and, uh, lots basically in Florida. I mean, there's plenty of places to go and I think it's all about it's, I mean, we're at that point. I don't know why it's taken people so long to figure that out, but it's like, we're at the point where either you fix your own state completely, which in California, I mean, California GOP is one of the most corrupt, bizarro organizations ever. It's I, there's a reason I drove to Nevada in order to volunteer for the Trump campaign. And again, in 2020 to work for the Trump campaign, I always go to Nevada. All my friends are there. It's a swing state, even though it's got 1930s level corruption, it's actually, it's more winnable than California. California is one of the, the, you know, worst places in all of America. So yeah, yeah leave. <laughs> um, is there um, an, another place or is this essentially like if, if you were uh, someone who would like to create dissident content or, or propagate some form of uh, dissident art, um, is there a place or is it essentially you're on your own and you're, you know, wherever you in the world you are, there, there is a, a way to, to, to do it? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, look, there's plenty of places. Our thing is... I went to the best film school in the world. You don't have to go to the best film school in the world. I think it's great. I went to USC. It was amazing. There are film schools all over the entire country. And um, you can go to any of those in the United States. Um, I, would, I would encourage young people to go to film school. Um, it can't be replaced by just working in the industry. There is something that you, there are many, many things that you learn by going to film school that it's, that's irreplaceable. I would never have been able to make plot against the president essentially by myself with a small team of people who had not as much experience making movies, um, as I did. Uh, so, um, without having that background. So I encourage people to do that. I also would say, you know, there's plenty of places where you can you can station yourself near enough to a big city that has um, any city that has a film school has people you can hire to work on your movies. Um, and everyone is trainable. I mean, this is the thing is that like movies are not like brain surgery. Um, if you're good at just being dedicated and getting work done. I mean, you know, there's certain technical uh, elements that have to be taught. Uh, but you don't have to be in either LA or New York. You can be just outside of New York, for example, which is a really great place to be. You can be like what they're, like I said, what they're doing with Daily Wire in Nashville. And what we're doing here in uh, essentially DC is there is, uh, there actually is um, not a massive uh, amount of uh, talent that live here to draw on. But when we make movies, we travel, we go everywhere. Like, I don't care where anyone lives. Like, I can work with people from all over the place because when we're shooting, you know, sometimes we're shooting here. Sometimes we're flying to San Francisco. <clears throat> sometimes we're going to Colorado. Sometimes we're going, you know, it, it's 
you don't really need to be in one place. Uh, you certainly don't need to be in Hollywood. Um, also, like there's plenty to be done in Orange County. If you really want to pull talent from Los Angeles, just open up shop in Orange County, which is something that we're considering doing as well. Um, I mean, for the moment, due to the types of films that I'm making right now and the types of projects that I'm talking about for the near future, I am wanting to stay close to D.C. Um, because, you know, I am still a political person. I'm still very involved in politics. And uh, it's something that I, I think is the right the right thing for us now. But eventually, yeah, I don't I don't see any reason to go bury yourself in the heart of Hollywood and battle it out with like a bunch of libs that hate you um, to try to work on like some like, you know, TV show about like, you know, BIPOC lesbians living in a four bedroom apartment in Las Feliz or something like I, I just don't want to do that. I mean, it's it's, you know, that's that's kind of my advice on it. Yeah, that, that sounds like uh, essentially the embodiment of hell. <laughs> yeah, I would I would not re- recommend that. Um, but that I guess that's that's Netflix. Anyone wanting to work for Netflix, it's it's all lesbians all the way down. Um, you were also an insider in in the Trump White House. Um, one thing that keeps getting um, mentioned in, in the dissident right circles is that. Essentially, the, the problem with with the Trump administration was that there there wasn't enough muscle inside the uh, administrative apparatus. So even with a few uh, appointees that, that Trump had, essentially the the ninety nine point nine percent of the managerial structure of the the country was still essentially controlled by the core regime. And there was just a sprinkling of people which were partly competent, partly essentially just political appointees that were, you know, Republican. Um, but, you know, is, is that the feeling that you've had from the inside as well? Like, could, could there be change within a structure like that? Well, yes. And I mean, I'll say that, you know, I only worked in the White House for six months. I was on detail from State Department. So I do understand State Department much more. But my the White House is different because the White House is basically, a, they have very limited staff. So a lot of people that work there are pulled over from the other agencies on detail, whether uh, to the NSC or DPC or whatever. But um, so the White House has its own set of issues, which is uh, common in any White House, which is that Basically, people who are supposed to be working on something going in the same direction are perfectly willing to stab each other in the back just to get closer to the sun. And I was warned about this, and I kind of stayed in my lane over at State Department for most of my time in the admin, and it was actually quite true. Um, So I would much rather be stabbed in the front by my enemies in the deep state than stabbed in the back by my friends in the white house. (laughs) So, um, I, I don't know how you fix that, but it's, it's just, uh, it's, 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 it was, it was a difficult time. Also, I think by the time I was over there, it was like year three. Um, but there were some amazing things that went on earlier than that. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that my uh, friends of mine accomplished early on in the white house was really incredible. Um, but, but in the agencies where you really are outnumbered. Okay. So in the White House, you're not really outnumbered. There's, for whatever reason, a lot of dumb people, uh, namely McMaster, 
um, had this fantasy that you could staff something like the NSC with mostly careers who had just previously been working in the Obama administration. And somehow these like totally apolitical careers are just going to go along with our administration, which is why like, you know, that was a disaster. Um, But in the agencies, yes, you're extremely outnumbered. Um, And that's just the way it's always been since the creation of the civil service, which is that um, political appointees are meant to be few and far between and to be um, sort of guide the careers into the new policy of whatever the new administration is. Basically, they've built the government so that no matter who the president is, really the policy never changes because you're only ever dealing with little sprinkles of political appointees in massive, massive bureaus where you could never keep your eye on everything that's going on at once. Um, it's, it's very, uh, unless, I mean, we, we basically have to do a massive overhaul of how we, how we structure the government. Um, and these things are possible. There are people that are working on ways that this can be done, um, it needs to be done. I mean, this is all, uh, this has all been going on for, for over 50 years. Um, there's not, it's not just special to our administration. It's just that our administration was the first one that actually wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. So it was very noticeable. Whereas like people don't really realize that the difference between the Bush and Obama administrations was virtually nothing especially in somewhere like State Department, where it's the foreign policy is almost identical, except for the Obama uh, obsession with getting Iran the bomb. Um, You've got, uh, you know, the Bushes destabilized the Middle East in a different way. They did that by invading Iraq and killing Saddam and all of that. Um, It's uh, it's 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 not it's not something that is. The structure is not particular to us. It is it was very, very noticeable in our admin. That's that was the um, so that's basically the problem is that um, it's it's we would need an entire overhaul of how the U.S. government is built. And it's like I said, it's built so that my thing that I keep wanting to draw people people's attention to is that what's been going on um, for a while, little by little, if and, and is really been amped up now is they really want to decrease the role of the president. They want they don't mind that all of us are sitting here going, we know Joe Biden's not in control. Who is running the government? Like, we want to know, like, who is actually making any decisions? Because clearly this is a man who has told things at the very last minute, propped up in front of a podium. This is not somebody who's got any kind of, who's any idea what's going on. This is very clear. And that is not like, they're not like worried about that. Like the, the powers that be are not like, oh gosh, They know that the presidency doesn't mean anything. What they've been trying to do is reduce the role and power of the presidency for a very long time in favor of this behind the scenes, you know, Politburo and the bureaucratic state in general. Um, And they're really doing it now. Now it's, it's definitely gone to another level. So that's something I think people need to watch. And that's why, again, Trump threw off their plans so brilliantly because he is such a singular character and he is such a, again, one of these type of men I admire, like a solo being who who stands up and does what he wants um, and clearly held power. 
Uh, despite all of the complaints that some of us may have about how the administration was was run personnel-wise, in the bigger picture, in the sort of mimetic picture, it was clear this was the boss. I mean, that's the guy's nickname, the boss, right? So he really threw off this multi-year plan that had been going on to diminish the role of the presidency in American politics. Um, They basically wanted us to just be like, well, you know, they wanted us to get used to the idea of it doesn't matter who we vote for. They're virtually the same and nothing's going to change anyways, because, again, most of these people's policies, they don't really change. They, They say things, but they don't really change. And even if they wanted to change, the bureaucracy is built like a brick wall to not allow for that change. Um, and, and there's very few people who know how to work around it. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have is we, we be, there's a reason there's three branches of government and the executive is run by the president and they want to diminish that as much as possible. They want to tell the president, oh no, you don't have the authority to do X, Y, and Z when he absolutely does. Um, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's been going on for a long time and it's hard for people to notice. It's hard for journalists to write about. Um, but it's something that we absolutely need to pay attention to. Yes. And, um, my fear is that it's, it's, it's really a deep seated problem because essentially it, it flows almost from the premises of, of liberalism, the idea that there is such a thing as a, a political science, that there is a way, a, a rational way to run government. And that uh, if we only get dial these, you know, the, the knobs in well, if we only place the nudges where they have to be so that, you know, the, the, or the state runs like a well-oiled machine, then essentially that's the purpose of politics. So essentially for, for that, you only need thinking heads. You don't really need politics. You just need the machine to grow. And you you build the machine incrementally with all these geniuses that you put in, in places like bureaucracy. So it's not it's no wonder in, in such a system. And you see this in all sorts of supranational organizations. The European Union is yeah. run like this even more than, than the, the U.S. state. UN, yes, they're all run exactly like this. And you and you bump up against it. And it's like, yeah, it's you know what, if they were looking for a series of geniuses, I wouldn't have a problem with it. What they're looking for is bureaucrats. And they're looking for people who will just expand, who will not consider where the money comes from, and will just find they, what they love is someone who can create a program and write like some totally cockamamie reason why they need said program. And then they can just shovel more money into it because it'll never go away. I mean, it is the hardest thing in the world is to end a program in the government. Like I remember my friends and I, we used to keep on our wall. There was an actual memo. It was real from Afghanistan um, that said, um, it was an argument cable, something going back and forth about the amount of funding that was going to fund a program that did lesbian, wait, that did gay and lesbian puppet shows for CVE, okay? And CVE is countering violent extremism. Now that is a phrase that they will tack onto anything. They can tack CVE onto, um, you know, uh, uh We'll have a program that teaches Afghanis how to match their socks to counter CVE, and it'll get approved. Anything with CVE on it will get approved. And and there were those of us that were like, stop, we're just not using that phrase anymore. Like, just none of this. Like, not, not, like end all of this. None of this is happening. And that's why when something like the withdrawal from Afghanistan happens, I, 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 
I know what it's like to be in the State Department during some type of a crisis. Um, but I just don't, I, it was really hard for me to feel bad for them because I'm like, you guys did this instead of spending all of your little stupid programs you guys invented so that you had something to do during the day. The, the government is a never ending railroad. And if they finish the railroad, they realize they might get moved to a different building or moved somewhere else. I mean, God knows they won't get fired because you can't fire bureaucrats, but basically they have to come up with a reason to just build the railroad around the world twice and then three times, and then whatever. Like, they'll, they just want to keep doing the program. And so, um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's so frustrating. We would see these things, and I'd be like, yeah, like, maybe instead of spending all of your time doing what you knew in your heart was bullshit, you guys knew this was all bullshit. You knew Afghanistan at this point was nothing more than a place for the State Department bureaucrats to play games with programs. And for every single bureau to get in on it. I mean, the, the idea, you know, obviously the, the sexy thing would be to be in like the, the Middle East Bureau and to have something to do with Afghanistan that actually sort of made sense and had to do with like actual, you know, spooky things that mattered. But then it went out from there to the point where, you know, even the bureau I worked at, which was International Information Programs before we closed it um, uh, or merged it with pub, uh, public affairs, um, the fact that they even would be like, well, you know, I could come up with a um, a knitting program for the women in Afghanistan, and uh, and that would be great because we want to empower women. So I can I can I can find one part of the national security strategy where it says empower Afghani women, and any program they could write under that, they could walk into their boss and they could say well, this fits under the national security strategy. We're empowering women with bead making classes. And I mean, that's what they were doing. They're spending taxpayer money doing this and, and, and they have no, they have no shame about it. They have, they don't care. They wouldn't do it for women in West Virginia. They're not going to do bead making classes to get, get, you know, extra money for women in West Virginia who are whatever, in, in, in poverty, but they'll do it for Africa. They'll do it for Afghanistan. They'll do it for anywhere else. And they'll, they'll really mean it. You know, yeah. they, I, I've had people come to tears when I told them that we were killing some of these programs where I was like, yeah, like you're bead making in Botswana or whatever. Like, I just, I know, like, you're going to have to put it in another bureau. Like we can't, they'll have five of them too. Cause remember like government is repetitive. So you've got, you know, 10 different bureaus in doing various versions of the same bead making program. I mean, it's enough to make you insane. Like there's a reason besides just having to direct the movie that I had to resign by, you know, uh, whenever it was, I did March, April of, uh, 2020 It's 2020. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I just started to go nuts. I could tell I was going nuts because my emails were getting really frank. My emails were getting very, very, uh, you know, most of the time I was able to sort of like, uh, you know, get mad at people in, in, in person as opposed to on email. But when I started um, just going, I, I was like, I have to get out of here. This place is driving me insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that I, I've known a few kind of EU bureaucrats and like that, they were extremely sincere about whatever shitty program they were working on. And they thought it was uh, the most important I don't know, <laughs> subsection of whatever, whatever 
that's what this is. This whole, it's America, it's the European Union, it's the UN, it's all of these global institutions. They are meant, it's so sick because the people that do it, they think that they know better than us and they think they're better people than we are. Oh, yeah. Um, It's all meant to drain all of our money. I mean, that is what it is. It is meant to absolutely, there's no reason why any of this should cost what it does. Every single one of these institutions is made to drain the funds of the middle class, to destroy the middle class, and uh, empower every globalist system that exists. That is all that they're, that's, that's it. That's all that they're doing. It's just, it's sickening. And, and to be in the room with these people while they look at you like you're just a bad person who doesn't like uh, women in, uh, you know, the Congo who want to have a bead making business. You're like, I don't mind the women in the Congo that want to make a bead making business. I just don't want them doing it with the taxpayer money of the people who I just knocked doors with who are working two jobs in the United States. Like, I'm not a bad person. I'm actually a good person. Like that's the thing that the more the moral high ground. I can't. I just can't stand it. The the way that they would behave, and they still do. They still behave this way, where they they they're literally on the eve of the Ukrainian whatever their their current fuck up, and and they still think that they are that they just outed a fascist regime. It's unbelievable to me. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting to see the Ukrainian thing happening now from the perspective of here in, in Eastern Europe because people are they're getting a bit antsy about about Russia. That's essentially a local problem, right. but we used to have kind of this guarantee from NATO that you know things would be like at least that there was kind of like a, a stalemate with Russia that they're not going to come closer. But now they're coming, and I feel like people are getting a bit hot under the collar here, especially in my region. Like, uh, oh, what's sure, going to happen? I'm sure they are, but I mean, you know. NATO's been a joke for uh, however long. I mean, I, I the one of the first meetings I went to when I worked at the State Department was NATO related, and I was like, "Oh my god! Like, this is a, they've spent billions of dollars on a building, and then decorated it with pieces of the wreckage of 9/11." And I was like, "I just this is a this is this." I was like, "Oh, another globalist nightmare!" Like, I just it. Uh, yeah, NATO NATO uh, is a total disaster. However, I mean, if you're fond of NATO, I will say at least the Trump administration actually got the Europeans to pay anything close to their fair share of what, if they actually care about NATO, they should be paying, uh, which was interesting to see everyone freak out about, you know, us on NATO when we're the ones that actually got, got them more funding than anybody. But um yeah, I mean, it's it's I, I'm sure it's it's probably stressing people out over there. But, uh, you know, this is the doing of of these global institutions that promised us that world peace would only be possible if only we handed over all of our funds and all of our faith into things like the U.N., NATO, the European Union. I thought this was what was supposed to make everyone feel safe. I didn't that you know, all it is is proof more that nationalism is needed more than ever. If you're a strong country, no one will fuck with you. If you're not a strong country, you depend on the, uh, you'll always be depending on other countries. I mean, it's the thing, it's the same thing with human beings. Um, you know, I, I prefer not to be in a position where I am dependent upon, um, the kindness uh, of others because it can it can it can change in any minute. Now that doesn't mean that I don't 
you know, to work and to be successful and everything else, we all depend on the kindness of other people and we all must, and that's a community and that's, there's a difference between that. Um, but, uh, you know, self-reliance being this very American, um, value that I learned, or at least was taught very young. I mean, I, I did grow up in a, in a, um, fairly, uh, privileged, uh, situation. Um, I didn't, I, I still threw a fit and didn't like it and kicked my feet and, uh, and, and still <laughs> managed to behave badly in it. But, um, but, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, there's something that I did get instilled in me, which is this idea of self-reliance. It's supposed to be the number one, one of the most important values that you have as an American. And I think it's, it's crossing boundaries. I mean, even, you know, Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, it applies everywhere. Um, and, and it's the way that we, yeah, so it's, it's the counter to the EU. And I think it's a very, um, a very, very, uh, useful philosophy at this point. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's an interesting thing to be in, in one of these countries that essentially, essentially benefited quite a lot from the EU up to a point. There are a lot of people, you get a lot of direct transfers, you know, from the EU for structural funds and all this stuff to build roads, to get factories. There's a lot of downsides, but I think up to this point, it's been, there's been a lot of upside, but the chickens will come home to roost for Romania. This is, you know, no, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, and also a lot of the money got diverted, diverted into like oligarchs and, you know, privatizations sure. and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, but I think in, in terms of NATO, I think that there's also a kind of narrative war going on here as well, because essentially what, what the Russians are doing and what the narrative that's coming now through the European Union is the Russians are coming. This is like the Red Army. They will rape and pillage your your villages, you know, the stories that your grandma told you are all going to come true. Um, they're going to come through every every part of the former Soviet Union. And essentially, that's not really what they're doing. Like, they're essentially in, in kind of... A, a, well, if they were, they certainly under-trooped themselves because uh, if they were actually going for an invasion, I think we'd see a lot more troops than we do. Um, I, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not good either way, but... Uh, this 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 fomenting this idea of World War Three is it's look it's just as ridiculous uh, as uh, as when as when they did it to us you know when the Trump administration uh, you know took out Soleimani uh, thankfully from Iraq uh, which I loved um, you know because I one of the things I always have to get in arguments with because I I tend to be on the you know very nationalist uh, nearly, you know, close to isolationist, um, policy, but you, but there's a big difference, which is that I actually understand the difference between Iran and Iraq, which most people who talk about this stuff don't, namely the fact that Persians aren't Arabs, which, um, most of the state department doesn't even seem to understand. Uh, so, you know, Iran was a country for, uh, millennia before England drew and imagined Iraq on a map not that long ago, which is a fake country made up of basically multiple different countries that has no business being a country. But anyway, um, uh, all, all this to say is that, yes, this is one of the issues I tend to get into with my, my, um, my nationalist friends, which is, uh, you know, actually killing Soleimani was the anti-deep state thing to do, because what the American deep state wants to have is a continued destabilization 
anywhere uh, of the Middle East, of, of, of anywhere they can have destabilization because that's what makes money for the Raytheon, for, for any of these defense contracting companies that ba- basically employ everyone in Washington, D.C. I mean, if you're not in the government, you're at one of these organizations, these, uh, you know, consulting and defense contracting firms. But, um, um, but, uh, point being, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that, you know, I think it's just as silly to think that we're entering world war three and that we're all going to get drafted and whatnot. Um, as, as it was when the left freaked out when, when we killed Soleimani and, uh, and they were like, oh my God, like you had like all these like soy boys, like doing, what what TikTok videos like being like I can't get drafted like ah oh. like <laughs> it's I don't think that's where we're going. Yeah, I mean, I I, I sure hope. Although so. I never, I never just dis- you know when you think you've seen the Biden administration at its worst, don't discount that they might also accidentally set off World War Three too. Like that could, ha- I mean, you know, hopefully not. But I don't. I think it's just going to be another American embarrassment. Who knows? Yeah, just just don't don't leave Biden alone in the in the room with the nuclear button. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, the the other thing I want to talk to you about is uh, John McAfee. He is uh, another McAfee. like McAfee, is it? Yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah. John McAfee. Um, uh, he is another one of these like uh, singular masculine personas. Um, very mysterious guy from beginning to end. I've seen one documentary about him, um, which was essentially sure just, yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, just a, a long litany about prostitutes and Belize and suspicious, weird stuff happening with him there. Um, I mean, why is John's story a, a worthwhile story to tell? Well, because really it's never been told before. I mean, what you're talking about is like uh, Hollywood's version of his life. And from my dad being somebody who Hollywood has taken a stab at uh, impersonating or kind of, you know, displaying here and there, I, I know how clownish it can be. And I actually think that he's a very important and um, interesting figure, especially at this time. I mean, for multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, the book that I optioned is um a collection of tapes, which obviously I also optioned that, um, that McAfee had with the author. Like McAfee was, was reluctantly in any way involved in the previous documentaries. Um, this is actually him telling his stories the way he wants them to this author. Now that doesn't mean that they're all true. Okay. So if somebody sat down with my dad and was like, tell me the story of your life, which has happened on occasion, he'll begin it by telling you that he was a mountain man. He won't tell you that those were the mountains of Bel Air. Like, it's like, there's, there's, you know, the, like these men uh, take license and I like that. I don't care. I I think that's fine. Um, but, uh, I, I think that that's one reason why it's really interesting because it's his actual thoughts, the closest to when he was either killed, was killed, I assume, uh, because I, the idea of him committing suicide just doesn't ring with me. I think he's, he's made that clear on many occasions. Obviously he had the word whacked tattooed on his arm after, after Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein was, was whacked, um, to say, I will never kill myself. And if I do, um, 
this is what actually happened. And then lo and behold, he's suicides himself in a, in a Spanish prison um, when he's not even wanted for charges that are anywhere near what Epstein was wanted for. I mean, this was not a man who was accused of anything with underage, this or that. All he was, I mean, he liked sex, drugs, and rock and roll with all different kinds of women. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, a common, um, you know, a little bit more common than people might think. Uh, and um, obviously there was the, there was a situation in Belize. I mean, I'm going to dive into all of it, but I want to do it from his perspective. I want to honor him and his family. Um, I feel very much for his grieving widow. Um, they obviously had a very special relationship. Um, you can see it. I used to follow him. I mean, here's the thing I was following, you know, I used to joke my, my two top candidates for 2016 were Donald Trump and John McAfee. So, uh, I'm not exactly going out of my lane with this. We're going to potentially do a documentary and, uh, I am, uh, developing a scripted feature, which is what I would direct if, uh, if, if that comes to be, uh, to do that, we have to partner with the second production company because scripted features are so much larger than documentaries that my company at the moment is built really as this documentary machine. Um, but basically, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm just very interested in him as a, as an extreme. I think, uh, one of the things I talked to you about with Tucker was, you know, how all of our brains, I think, work at this moment in time where America was the last frontier. America is not a country anymore. It really isn't the United States that we thought it was uh, or that it was 10 years ago. Um, and it really even isn't the one it was five years ago. But it turns out it hasn't been for a long time. And so we're dealing with this post-American superpower idea that I don't think a lot of people are really ready for what that means. Um, and so, you know, when empires collapse, uh, when republics collapse, um, what happens? You know, and I'm not saying that that's exact that that's that's happening today, or that that's exactly what's happening, or that that should happen. It certainly shouldn't happen. I would like to do everything I can to make it not happen, um, but. Uh, you look at ways people live in extremes. You know, some people move to the mountains and some people build bunkers filled with ammunition and then get raided by the FBI uh, and the uh, ATF and murdered by, by uh, you know, en masse. Uh, some people um, do all kinds of different things to sort of check out from whatever the political turmoil that becomes real turmoil is. And that's the problem is I think we're living in a time where you've got a bunch of kids and people and social media and all of this stuff where there's political turmoil and they don't realize that it's actual turmoil. You know, the only people that I think are really feeling the actual turmoil are, frankly, people where you're living, for example, um, and, uh, you know, for another example, people like the January 6th defendants who have been rotting away in a special prison made just for them, uh, which we used to call, I think, a gulag um, <clears throat> for political prisoners in the United States. Um, so, you know, there are signs that the uh, the uh, 
turmoil has become very, very real. FBI raiding journalists' homes like Project Veritas's James O'Keefe, um, uh, raid, like what happens in my film several times, raiding the homes of the political enemies of the ruling class, whether Donald Trump was in office or not, he was still not the ruling class. The ruling class was still, uh, you know, the Clintons, the the Bushes, the people that were against him, or else we wouldn't have seen um, this weaponized DOJ show up at Roger Stone's house uh, with helicopters and uh, and everything else. Um, so it's uh, it's very. To me, you look at lifestyles that are extreme ways to get away from the turmoil because you ask yourself, like, what would I do in World War Three? Um, you know, frankly, it, I, 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 well, I can't say this, but, you know, there's a lot why. Yeah, I literally can't say this. I, I'm about to Fed post on air. But anyways, <laughs> but what would I do in on in World War Three? What would anyone do? I mean, one thing that's, that people think about is they're like, well, I'll just get on my boat and just go away. And just hang out, do sex, drugs, and rock and roll with, you know, my weird life out on a boat. And, you know, as Tucker said, they got to him anyway, supposedly. You know, he ended up in a Spanish prison, killed. We don't know why. Uh, I I don't know why being killed over tax evasion makes sense to anybody. Uh, So there's a lot to learn there. So sorry to to blather on, but the the McAfee thing is extremely interesting to me. It's more interesting than the Epstein thing in some ways because so many people are uh, doing really great research on the Epstein thing. Um, I'm not saying I'll never do something about the Epstein situation. it's, It's the same reason why I say I'm not doing anything about 2020 for a year or two. I don't work on things unless I know what I'm saying. I don't like, you know, it's a different way of operating. Like, uh, our, our side has to be perfect. And every claim that I make has to be what I know to be true. So until I get to the point where I know every single word of every single thing I say and anything that I put out is true, um, I'm not going to do it. And because we don't have the power of the state, uh, anyone who's making documentaries about certain things in 2020, certain things about the election, they simply don't know because I'm not saying they're wrong. They could be right, but they just don't know. I mean, I worked on that election and I can tell you that the only way that you could ever find out what actually happened is if you were given the powers of the state. You must have the investigative powers of the state and access to everything in order to figure out what happened. And it's not something that some group of people can do. And it wasn't even something that our camp, the campaign could do. And not to say that they shouldn't have been prepared for that and, and ready for it and all of that. But, uh, you know, that's another story. So anyway, so Yes, long and short is that's one of the reasons why I am ex- I'm extremely fond of John McAfee. I've always been very fond of him. I just find him so entertaining. Uh, one of the best tweeters to ever live, uh, uh, aside from obviously our 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 president Donald Trump and uh, <laughs> and and others. Um, and and I just am very fond of him. Yeah, he's definitely a, a kind of mesmerizing character he's just a super charismatic 
Um, yeah, he, he's he's missed. I mean, uh, it was. I remember. I mean, essentially, the, the documentary, the the one that I saw, the kind of the more high profile. I think it was a Netflix thing or Amazon thing. At one point, they really promoted it. Uh, he was set out to be like the bad guy, but I was watching sure. my husband. I was like, we're rooting for this guy. I'm sorry, yeah, it's pretty they, cool. they they don't want people to be like that. They don't want free thinkers. They don't want anybody who's just like, you know what, fuck the system. I'm just gonna get on. My, I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. They don't want that. Of course, that's why people are like, oh, well, people are already putting out documentaries about this. You're like, yeah, but I haven't. Like, I I could literally make a documentary about anything and it will be different than anything else that ever happened. Like, I get, I'm not, I have no worry about these things because uh, it's my thing. It's my version of whatever it is. Like, I could make a version of like, you know, Terminator and it would be different than anybody else's. Like I, I don't have this like fear of like other, you know, that there's, there's other works out there. It will, it will be nothing like mine. You know, there's, there's documentaries about Donald Trump too. Guess what? Mine's different. Like there's documentaries about Russiagate. Mine's different. So I'm, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do recommend people watch the uh, plot against the president. Um, the last question is a question of the show. Um, I want to ask you, do you have a, a subversive thinker, you know, living or dead, it could be a writer, it could be even a filmmaker um, that you think is underrated and that people should do well to check out? Well, I don't know if he's underrated, but um, I, whenever I'm talking to someone and they're sort of getting red pilled, which is actually something that happens a lot after people see the movie, um, people seeing hoaxed and uh, plot against the president kind of back to back will pretty much red pill anyone. So like if you have friends that you're like arguing with all the time and you're like, look, can you just watch these two movies? Then just we'll talk. It, it's really effective because they're not about, they're not hyperbolic. They don't take the side of one party over another. And they're just truly based in fact, that's inarguable. Um, so when I talk to such individuals, one of the first things I always do is I always say, what you really need to do is read Andrew Breitbart's book, uh, Righteous Indignation. And I was unfortunately sort of too young to have spent a time with Andrew when he was creating some of the institutions that he had created in Los Angeles for conservatives in Los Angeles, um, which he did. And he, again, he comes from around the corner from where I come from. Like, like, you know, it's weird. Me, him, Stephen Miller, and like a handful of other really Steve Bannon, tough conservatives come from like the same corner of Brentwood. I, I, there's something in the water. It's weird, but like, um, but, but Andrew Breitbart, was so significant in, in waking up people that are waking up other people now. And he saw through, I mean, there's times like none of this stuff would be happening if he was still alive. Like, thank God for Chris Rufo and fighting against the CRT stuff. But like Andrew Breitbart saw past every race accusation, every Every trick the left did because he was a communicator. And that's what we really need is just sharp, fast, brilliant communicators. Um, you know, Alan West said something like this recently. He was like, he he went through, it was this speech at CPAC that I watched again recently because I had to send it to someone. 
Um, he went through uh, the recent mistakes the right had made, um, which could have been solved in 10 seconds had we had anyone with half a brain doing comms on the right. Um, and, and it's something that we've got to work on because you know what people do? They put their, they get in government and then someone puts their girlfriend in the comms position because they're like, oh, she's a girl. She likes to talk. She can do communications. No, like I want trained propagandists who are like, like Machiavellian to the soul. Like I want, like, I need, it's, yeah, like I, 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 this is going to sound really like uh, pretentious and conceited, but I am a little bit of a narcissist having been raised by two of them. Like I always said, like, I need to like clone myself like 10 times to do the, do proper comms on the right. And the, the, the best way I can point people in doing it is watch everything that Andrew Breitbart did, watch every argument that he got in and how he dismantled it, everything he did to make fun of the left. Every, I mean, the man was uh, so influential on me. Um, And this was back before I could admit that I was, you know, when I was still going to film school or I was working in the film industry and what little way I was in various, um, you know, I I was actually working in some fairly big independent entertainment companies and things like that. Um, but, uh, everything I would, I would console myself by going either running or walking, but listening to Andrew Breitbart's arguments in my headphones. And, um, and he is definitely, um, you've got to read the book because it's a, the book is a, is a journey of his journey to becoming right wing. And it's so everyone will find something in it that is it speaks to them. So righteous indignation, watch everything he ever did. Absolutely. Andrew Breitbart. Excellent. Yeah, I, I love Andrew Breitbart. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank for you. I'm so glad we got to do this finally. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, I point everyone towards uh, um, Amanda's wonderful Twitter page, uh, and also uh, towards the Plot Against the President documentary, which is out on everywhere. Amazon, fine. Amazon, iTunes. And if you don't, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube premium. And if you don't want to support any of those companies, you can get it on Rockfin for crypto. Okay. Awesome. And the uh, John McAfee documentary, any ideas on timelines? Uh, well, we just optioned the material. Let me just give you an example. When we optioned the material for Plot Against the President, we didn't tell anybody. We optioned it in like September of 2019. And um, we didn't begin shooting until the end, like sometime in, we did some winter stuff early on, but like May of 2020. Of, of 2020. So, uh, and it came out in October of 2020. Uh so we're a year off for okay. sure. Like there's, there is no way to make it faster than that. We just optioned the material and we got Lee Smith's next book. The, uh, what we, what was based on this article, the 30 tyrants, which is going to be the mother of all China documentaries, which is going to go into everything. Wuhan, the history of China being sold off, uh, the United States being sold off to China. We've got four more documentaries that we haven't announced yet we have a lot going on. So there's going to be, it's going to, there's going to be a lot coming out. Excellent. That sounds absolutely amazing and terrifying and hopeful. 
I don't know, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. At least it keeps you in business. I mean, the, the, the fall of our empire seems to be an extremely gripping uh, material. <laughs> so. Yes, I mean, that's the thing we need to, can, I, I do this all the time, but I encourage like, there's all these Republican donors donating, lighting their money on fire. And I understand why to candidates, we absolutely need to get good candidates in. But, you know, I'm not an organization, I'm not a donation organization. It's a business. It's an investment. Like, it's, uh, I, I don't, I, it's so insane me explaining to people on the right, the supposed like free market, like entrepreneurial right. Uh, we have to make this a business that makes money and can repeat itself or we're never going to be able to compete. So uh, that's what we are busy doing is making hits and um, we'll continue to do so. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing that. And, and good luck with, with all the new documentaries. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this. Cheers. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Bye. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>